Welcome to the Pivot Fund Pod, where we hold conversations that disrupt journalism and philanthropy. My name is Zuri Berry, and what follows is a previously recorded conversation on how newsletters can empower publishers of color to connect with their communities. This conversation is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and co-hosted by the founder of the Pivot Fund and its chief executive officer, Tracy Powell, as well as Liz Alarcon, the founder and executive director of Pulso, a nonprofit media startup that shares news, history, and culture stories stories by and for Latinos. Tracy and Liz are joined by S. Mitra Kalita, the co-founder of Epicenter NYC and URL Media. Here's Liz to kick us off. Thank you, Tracy, for bringing us together and for allowing my curiosity to burgeon here to ask Mitra all of the questions about her awesome success and hopefully help us all learn as we embark on this journey and learn about the power of newsletters. So welcome, Mitra. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Tracy. Love you, Tracy. I'll do anything for Tracy. Same. Um, it's great to meet you. I actually feel like I'm going to learn um, just as much, maybe more from you. Your background is incredible. And you've spent more time in um, in Latino media and so-called ethnic media than I have. So I, 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 uh, I'm excited for this. Thank you. And I'm excited to meet you too, Mitra, in person. Although I, as I was, we were mentioning before we hopped on that I'm sure I've e-stalked you before to learn about what you're doing. And I think to, to start to frame your story, you were senior vice president at CNN. And last, th- last year, everything changed. Can you walk us through your journey? And a follow-up question to that is, did Epicenter in NYC, NYC come first or did URL Media come first? Oh, good question. Yeah, I can. I, well, that's that's a part of the journey. So thank you. Thank you for asking the clarifying question first, because I think people get confused. And I think a lot of us actually feel this way in this moment where it's like, we're doing so many things. Is there, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll um, I'm happy to clarify that. So the journey, like, I feel like the simple version is, you know, the year of the lockdown, the pandemic, George Floyd protests, and, you know, senior vice president leaves CNN to launch community newsletter, focuses on BIPOC media, launches a network. Like, I feel like that's the on paper story. But because this is Tracy's thing, and I... Um, no, I can't, like her BS meter is um, like off the charts. You know, I would be lying if I said I hadn't thought about a better path for years, maybe even like my whole career, right? So a lot of us who, like I entered newsrooms through a diversity and journalism program when I was 16 years old, the Dow Jones Newspaper Fund. And it was a program that literally brainwashed teenagers to enter mainstream newsrooms and find jobs and ascend. And because I am also the daughter of immigrant parents, and I had this like formal training on here's how it should go. And then you do this, and then you do this, and then you're going to be in charge of the whole world. And we will achieve this like magical utopia of representation and diversity in our newsrooms, right? And of course, that is not how my 21, 22 years in mainstream media worked out. Now, I enjoyed a lot of success. I am like one of the lucky, um, so lucky. And I still am a firm believer in the need for mainstream institutions. I think I've shifted a little bit in my thinking, and this happened in the last few years of CNN, from banging my head against the wall, showing them the change, 
to a place where I think it's incumbent upon all of us to redefine the mainstream, meaning it's got to meet us as much as we meet them. Probably they got to meet us a little bit more given how far uh, the power dynamic favors mainstream media. And so that's like in the backdrop of, you know, these are not new thoughts before, but like during COVID, this is like, the, this is my whole career, you know? And so, you know, I always say about Epicenter, it's not like I suddenly woke up and launched a newsletter because I cared about Jackson Heights. You know, I've been giving my neighbors, you know, like extra cup of sugar or food or like whatever, like for, for my whole time here. So this is a neighborhood um, that I have a history with. My father landed in Jackson Heights in 1971. Like many immigrants, they moved to the suburbs. They bought a house there. I was raised in Puerto Rico, which is a little bit of a... Um, digression from being the daughter of Indian immigrants. And, you know, everybody thinks I'm like all about Bollywood and all that, but the Puerto Rico years were pretty significant. And anyway, so I end up in Jackson Heights on and off in my case for the last um, 20 years off for some of it. I lived overseas. I lived in Los Angeles. Um, I lived in Washington, DC, but I love this neighborhood. And in some ways this neighborhood is perfect for the daughter of Indian immigrants who was raised in Puerto Rico, who like, you know, loves diversity, but also loves really good takeout because it's like a crazy night and I just need my kids to like eat well, right? So so that's like my story of this neighborhood. This neighborhood was one of the most severely affected by COVID. Uh, we were called the epicenter of the epicenter. The New York Times called us that. Uh, the cable trucks were all here. The ambulance sirens were constant. Elmhurst Hospital, which is like one of the world-renowned places around infectious disease, was just like there were no beds to be found. Because my husband and I have this role in the neighborhood where people turn to us, usually like for food or can we like hang out in your backyard or, you know, like all the things that make good neighbors, we started to hear from folks saying, where do we get a COVID test? How do we get a bed at Elmhurst Hospital? This guy just died at Elmhurst. He's undocumented from Mexico, has no family in the U.S. His body is with the city. Like, how do we get him out of there? But his daughter has like all these questions back in Puebla, like, can somebody help, right? My husband looks at the picture and he says, oh my God, that's my bike mechanic, right? That's the kind of neighborhood we are. And so that's like intensely local, right? It doesn't get more local than my husband being like, oh my God, I know that guy to then being like, and I'm going to be kind of, I hope this isn't disrespectful or crude, but like literally how do we get the body out of the city morgue? What do we tell his daughter? And like, what's that process like? And what's, what's logistically possible right now, right? And so that was like what we were contending with. There's a bougie side of me, which we'll dive into in the next few minutes too, but like, where can you get yeast? Uh, is there anywhere to escape from the city for like a few days? You know, where, what's a good bike trail? What's a good park that we can get to? Like we live in a very densely populated, like the same reasons I love living here, are the same reasons COVID thrived in Jackson Heights, Corona and Elmhurst, those are the neighboring areas. And so um, anyway, this is like our lives for a few months, weeks actually. And I said, well, isn't it interesting that I oversee digital strategy at CNN and run one of the world's largest newsletters, the Five Things Newsletter. And I'm really good at disseminating information. And yet I feel so helpless when somebody says, 
how can we do this thing that we need in our neighborhood? And I said, you know, I would be pretty useless as a neighbor if I didn't leverage the skills I have as a journalist. And I'd be definitely useless as a journalist if I didn't somehow figure out a way to serve my community right now. Now that might sound a little saviory and I apologize for that because I'm like listening and I'm like, eh. Um, but anyway, so I started hitting forward on all these email requests, text requests, and it was like the same 50 people over and over. And I realized newsletters allow us to basically do that action of informing people in the one medium that all of us are still on after 20 plus years of many, many different platforms and mediums. And I said, could we launch an email newsletter? I was still at CNN. I went to CNN's like standards and ethics. And I said, hey, listen, my community is burning. Do you guys mind if I just launch this community thing that allows us to get help, give help? There's all, oh, by the way, there's a ton of businesses who were like trying to navigate PPP loans. Many of the restaurants in Jackson Heights, which I feel like you guys all think I'm like a massive foodie for living here, which we kind of are, but you know, there's a ton of restaurants here that would um, ask us for help to survive. And it was very selfish. Like my reason for wanting to help them was like, I love these restaurants. You have enabled my life for the last like 20 years. Like, of course we got to help you, you know? And also they, many of them have undocumented labor, just, just like complicated situations. So I, I said to CNN, can we do this? They said, yeah, it's so great that you're helping your community, right? They were, they were fine with it. So we launched Epicenter in July and it, kind of took off. It took off more in a, in a, in like six or seven months later, but it kind of took off, but it did the thing Liz that I'm like trying to get at, which is it allowed me to go from 50 to several hundred to say, you know what, we're in a moment right now where the answers are probably among us. So let's help each other get to whatever the other side looks like. That was really the ethos of Epicenter. URL media came about because within five seconds of launching Epicenter, I realized the difference between an Epicenter and CNN has everything to do with the long-term sustainability of our businesses. Because even though I launched this as a community newsletter, you know, you set up a MailChimp list, you got to go under privacy laws of adding people to it. Like it was a business, right? It, whether it was charitable or whatever, it was not charitable, but you know, so... That lesson was early in my kind of foray into this type of community journalism. And it felt like, oh no, nobody's ever going to discover how to get a COVID test in Jackson Heights as long as you Google how to get a COVID test in Jackson Heights and your top results are always going to be CNN, NBC, everybody but me who actually knows Jackson Heights better than all of you, right? And so... I really set out to ponder how can I achieve scale, which is like the story of the whole digital economy, right? Everybody is pondering how to achieve scale, but not sacrificing intimacy, relevance, and really importantly, trust with my audience and trust and service, I would say, right? Like I am, I am doing this for the love of where I live. Sorry, that's my dog. Um, but I also need to be discoverable. And so URL Media was born out of, what if a bunch of brands like us, the Haitian Times, Epicenter, WURD, which is run by my co-founder, Sarah Lomax Reese, Sahan Journal in Minneapolis, Alabra in, um, run by NAHJ, a Latino freelancer site. What if we all banded together 
and actually enabled scale, but still deeply rooted in service to our community. So they are two distinct companies. Epicenter is a member of URL. Many of our strategies are similar because unfortunately I only have one brain and like why duplicate if something is working in one newsletter, you could, you know, try the same thing in another. So, but they are two distinct companies, different staffs, and, um, and I would say different missions and different audiences too. Wow, Mitra, there's so much there and I'm, I'm you no, know, I'm sorry. I was very long winded. No, I'm, I'm really thankful that you walked us through the entire journey because my second question, which you answered was going to be, what was your relationship with your neighbors before mm. starting Epicenter NYC? And I think you walking us through where you were, who you were in community and how this came about organically is the story because you, you did something that was meeting a very real need. And that in itself was what allowed you to scale and for those 50 emails to become a hundred. And I'm sure you'll tell us a bit more as to where you are now from, from last June. So that was really, really interesting. And just thank you also for sharing how both of those babies live in your womb, if we want to say it like that, or live within your brain, like you said, because it, it is, essential that we help each other. I, I also am in deep communication with other Latino media organizations. And, and now with you, we have to band together because if not, the way that our stories are going to be portrayed in mainstream are going to drown out the positive and helpful narratives that we need to tell our community. So I also love that you used that epicenter of the epicenter to kind of flip the script. Totally. Oh, I love that you picked up on that. Cause like one of my friends was like, epicenter is like a negative word. And I'm like, we are emanating like, so here's the real truth about how I see the epicenter, like COVID threw a lot of Americans for a loop. It was like, we have never faced adversity in our lives like this before. We've never faced uncertainty before there was life before and there's life after. Guess what group of people know exactly that scenario? It's immigrants, right? We left, not we, my parents left everything behind, started over, and there's massive uncertainty and there's redefinition along the way. There's an embrace. And I would say, I would argue that the moment to lean into how does this country get to the other side was to center blackness and brownness because these are the communities that have their history in America is what white America was facing for maybe the first time in the spring of 2020. So for me, the epicenter was totally flipped in the way that you just picked up on of like, no, let us show you how to do this, right? Um, So thank you. I love that. And it leads me to my next question, which you started to touch on as well, which was, that you all started, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mitra, as a rapid response to yeah. immediate needs that yeah. your community wasn't wasn't getting, but you've now evolved to be your one-stop shop for everything Jackson Heights and everything else that your community might need, like where to go for two days to escape the city or where to find yeast. So tell us a bit more of how your content and your offerings have evolved over this sure. past year to keep that loyalty yeah. and trust, which is also something you were talking about and that we were talking a bit offline before joining. Yeah. So we now publish, so under the epicenter kind of um, uh, media empire, this is Tracy's framing. Love it. Love yes. it. I love, yes. I own it. Own it. Own it. So under epicenter, we publish four newsletters a week, but we also have a podcast 
many live streams and we do a ton, a ton of community engagement IRL. And I would say the in real life part is something we don't even shout about much in our newsletters or on Twitter or on Instagram. We actually need to get better about that. But we do a ton in person that absolutely informs to your point about identifying the needs of the community it has everything to do with the content you're reading. We're just not always telling you like, oh, we hung out with a hundred people and gave them like bags at the food bank. And like, this is how we know that X, Y, Z is going on. So there is absolutely an on the ground component. Um, many, many times a week we're out there. The universe is expansive. So we run two newsletters through the Epicenter brand. One is really in the style of what I'm talking about, give and get help. It has a main feature, um, day trips, we always, always feature an artist um, getting the last word, and we pay those artists $100 for their submissions. This was really significant in the height of the pandemic uh, when artists were like, remember us, like the people who make your city amazing. And so 100 bucks is, might not sound like a lot, but you know, just for us to be able to pay artists off the bat, we paid artists, honestly, before journalists. We, we just, because it was so clearly a community that, was in need, they get the last word. And that's really important because like, I want to end on a feeling of uplift and joy and empowerment. And I also think there's so much captured during these times of change that art gets right. And journalists, we're the ones who have to catch up to it. Right. So I'm married to an artist. So I kind of think about these things a lot. I've had to like take my very methodical inverted pyramid style, rigid ways and open myself up to different forms of storytelling. And because my husband co-founded the newsletter with me, the artist feature was his idea. And I'm so glad we have it. It's incredibly grounding. Um, it also kind of harkens to a newsletter strategy I learned at CNN our last item in the five things newsletter was always a video. It was kind of a video that like was meant to delight you in some way. It was our most clicked, like it was a guaranteed high click video in that newsletter. I feel like I'm giving away their secrets, but that's okay. It's because this is a newsletter framed conversation that might just be helpful to kind of like, we often think about, you know, how far people get, but we really are trying to give you a deliverable at the end that makes it worth it. And like, it's kind of similar to story structure. Like I'm obsessed with narrative and structures of how we write. And I don't see newsletters as dissimilar. So that was, um, that, that artist feature really is hopefully uh, like something people feel treated by. The second one is a government and elections newsletter. It was a pop-up and it's been wildly successful. So as we're grappling with covering an Eric Adams administration, likely given the results, whatever happens next Tuesday, uh, we'll see. But that's uh, where that's going. And I welcome all thoughts on newsletters and coverage of government and how that can look ground up. It's intentionally and very publicly experimental. Uh, we launched another pop-up newsletter that has sustained for more than a year now uh, called The Unmuted. And the unmuted was born out of literally uh, the last week of August of 2020, not knowing if schools were going to open or not, like in New York City. We were like, how do we not know what's going to happen? It was a crazy time as a parent. And we launched this saying, let's just answer some of those questions. Similar needs as the launch of Epicenter. It is our most engaged product. Open rates are consistently above 60% on that product. It's crazy, which won't surprise you because I think 
just like what it means to parent and get your kids to school right now. It's like, we should get a medal every day. And that newsletter sort of leans into that identity, but also is very tactical. This is happening. Here's how you get homework help. Here's where you get mental health help. There's free Wi-Fi or like $50 credits for Wi-Fi in New York, like all this stuff that's like resources available that people don't know about. Last one in that empire is called the escape home. It's like my guilty pleasure of the week. This is the one that Tracy loves because it's 290. Oh no, that's, that's 90. This one's $99 a year. We'll get to 299 in a moment. It's $99 a year. And we are a newsletter for second homeowners and people who want to buy second homes. This is oddly a product that I've like dreamed of launching for years. And COVID just hastened the need for escapes from the city. Some people already had homes. They went and moved there. Other people were like, just get me out of here. Like, I'll make that my primary home. I want to live on a ranch. I'll take a studio in the city. It just upended how we live. Timing has been everything for us. That newsletter launched two weeks before Airbnb's IPO. So we rode those coattails like nobody's business. It's been phenomenal. Um, the Escape Home uh, also co-publishes with Market Watch. Our lead feature is always co-published with Market Watch, which is published, of course, by the same folks that do the Wall Street Journal. It's a great funnel for us. It's a great way to get our brand out there without anybody knowing um, who we are. And so those are the four newsletters in that empire. And then I should just mention URL Media does have a separate newsletter If anyone like in the course of this conversation has questions around discipline of newsletters, aggregating newsletters, I feel like that's a better model on that one. We launched in January of 2020. And then we were like, and those of you who've done newsletters know this struggle. It was like, we said we'd be every two weeks. Sometimes it was every three weeks. It would like, like kind of, I'm so proud that over the last three months, it has been every week. You can count on it. We like take turns writing. I mean, it's just gotten a discipline that I'm really, really proud of. Okay, that's a lot too. So I'm going to pause. That is a lot of amazing information. We try. I want to welcome folks who are joining, like you said, to also ask us questions anytime in the chat or using the Q&A feature and we'll bring it up in conversation. I have a long list of questions. Yeah, so keep going. going. So five newsletters. I have to ask you, you've touched a bit on how you've pivoted or created products based on needs and based on moments and capitalizing on on coattails. I have to ask you the failure question. Oh yeah. So tell us uh, as much as you feel comfortable sharing the the low moments in these in these 12 plus months, almost a year and a half now, but also the learning from yeah. from that and and of course throw in some more successes after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. It's such a, it's I'm so um, you frame that so innocently, um, but it's like very real. When a newsletter subscriptions feel stuck is like, to me, I don't know if it's a failure, but like, I think we've all been there and I just want to acknowledge that. So there was a period between maybe like October and January where Epicenter was like pretty stagnant. And I, like I had had big goals because we always set our goals for December of the end of the year, which like, I think we need to stop doing that because why set your goals for after Christmas, like, or during the holiday season? Like, it's just crazy. There's nothing that happens. So we were stuck. And like, it just felt like I had set 
I think it said something like 5,000 subscribers by December. And we were so far from that. And like, I just, I was like, is this working? Is this thing on? I mean, the open rate's super high. So like you're serving someone and that matters, but like there's more people in Jackson Heights. There's more people in Queens. Like we've started to expand. Even people in Brooklyn are telling us like, you could, you could ride your bike here. Like we were, you know, we're getting artists certainly in Brooklyn and in Manhattan. And so I felt really stuck. And I think a failure early that continues to be a failure is the integration of newsletters with social media, with audience acquisition, with like who we are and figuring out how you tell people that beyond links to your newsletter, beyond subscribe to our newsletter, like just beyond all the things that I've done and I see other people do them. And here's how we got out of that mini failure, if you will. January comes along and we, this gets to the point about doing things in real life, but not connecting it to your digital presence and your brand. So people started asking us for help getting registered for vaccines. Uh, one, of the, one of the projects we had done in the fall, uh, which actually won this award in like a student competition because we worked with students at NYU, was the small business chain. So the students would interview a small business. They'd tell us how it's going, what we need, and like what makes us special, like super simple. Then they would nominate the next business, and then they would nominate the next business. And we did like a handful of businesses in this manner. It was like a cute feature. In January, I get a call from one of the restaurants saying, restaurant workers qualify for vaccines, but we don't know how to get them. And I said, oh, I just helped my parents do this. It's super complicated. I can help. And so I helped two people at this restaurant. And I just did it. Because again, people are calling, you know, it's, and there's a blurry line between them calling me or my husband or Epicenter, right? Like, again, you kind of have to be of the community that you're serving. And I think being synonymous is fine. In that way, I think there's a difference with brands and substance and all that, which we can also get to. But I, they do not think of me as a brand. They just think like Mitra answers her phone. She'll help us. Right. So I got them their vaccines. Soon I got an Excel spreadsheet from the restaurant with the rest of their workers. And so began this very organic, to your point, Liz, organic movement of what does the community need and what are we giving them? And we pivoted. And so I started to write takeaways from first, it was 64 people we helped get vaccine appointments. Then it was 300. By the end of that three, four month period, we had helped nearly 6,000 New Yorkers secure vaccine appointments. Our newsletter rates grew exponentially in the process because it wasn't just 6,000 people we helped. About 9,000 people filled out a form saying they needed help. 3,000 got them on their own or they had like a kid, probably a daughter who was able to book them. And like, so, but more people turned to us in the process of trying to navigate this crazy period. And, um, and so we exploded. And for me, the failure I think had been being so new and kind of just like, like almost being stagnant as a product and saying, oh, guess what? Our email subscribers are stagnant too. And there's something meta about that, right? Mm-hmm. Once we said, what do people need? Let's meet them with what they need and keep asking how to get this to them. And we'll do Google drives for restaurant workers to download letters and we'll do 
a whole Spanish committee. We'll do a whole Chinese and uh, Cantonese and Mandarin committee to help translations in the vaccine effort. We'll open ourselves up to the helpers and those who need help, recognizing that there's an overlap in the same way we launched, right? It changed everything. And so there's a part of me that like feels like I'm on steroids now, like pivoting all the time. But I think one, those are the times we're in. We are in a pandemic where like the CDC sort of pivots like every hour, right? Exactly. If we're not gonna, for us not to pivot is to do a disservice to our people, right? right? Literally from a life and death perspective. The second piece is the technology and the delivery forces us to meet people where they are And that is constantly changing. So I think that as somebody who's obsessed with distribution, I really had to like take my own messaging to heart. And I tell the team this way all the time. We launched as a newsletter. We are not a newsletter company, right? We launched as a newsletter because we saw that. And that I think gets to the question of why newsletters and not a website we saw this as a way that we were already communicating with people. Hey, does anyone have this? Does anyone know this? Like it was just a easy way to have a megaphone, but there are many megaphones and we need to lean into more of them. You have another question here. We have so many questions, which is oh, awesome. Good. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to jump on this. I think you answered the website question, but Lynn also has a question about podcasts versus Substack. So can oh, you talk yeah. a bit about those other platforms as well. Sure. And then I'll, I'll give you two more that are here also yeah, that's great. getting into the details. So, Tracy, I'm so glad. Yeah. how many people and who exactly are the people who you're serving through your newsletters? Okay. And then we have a monetization question. So oh, Martha right. asks, how do you monetize your newsletters and feel free to get rudimentary? So there's okay. three or four for you. Okay. All right. So let me take podcasts first and then we'll get to monetization. So podcasts, we're kind of accidental. We were doing live streams during the vaccine effort. So like another thing happened, which was like, it's so fast changing. I was like, I can't wait till a Tuesday newsletter to tell you that now people over the age of 55 qualify. Like it's just not going to work. And on the other hand, I don't have the reach of a CNN with the alert system, which is like, I'm buzzing in your pocket all day long with my news and alerts team, right? Like I don't have that luxury of scale. What I did have was really committed people saying, we'll help you figure it out. Like, because we had all these, vol- like all these volunteers basically signed up to help New York get vaccinated. And I realized that what we had tapped into was almost um, kind of like a subset of your most engaged community members, which there's upsides and downsides of that, because it can also mean that they're the most, uh, they have the most time, the most privilege, and they happen to be the whitest of our audiences, right? So there's a danger of going with people who are like, oh, I'll do that, I'll do that, because it puts a certain framework on your news and information that favors the people who have time when we're trying to serve those who might not have the time, right? So I I was like every volunteer meeting, I would open up with a version of that, like, check it, check it, check it, I'm checking it, you check it, right? Like, you know, you're going to raise your hand, but wait to see if someone else raises their hand. Right. So it's like a whole thing, but, but we did have that. We were doing these live streams in English and Spanish, how to book your vaccine, like a lot of how to's once they approved kids over 12, like here's a talk with pediatricians because it just broke and you probably want to hear from a doctor right away. So we're doing a lot of immediate work. 
there was something about that intimacy of talking and sound. And I kept thinking how much of the pandemic, especially as we experienced it in Jackson Heights was sound. Like we were in our houses, but we heard ambulances. We heard the pots at 7 p.m. We would hear people calling out to each other. There was an open street. And I just kept thinking about the sound of New York. um, And is there a way to convey that in a podcast? Because so much of the success of success rather of a podcast is ambient sound and intimacy and storytelling and also like getting real with people, right? So there's a company called Pirate Audio and they, through a friend of a friend and contact of a contact approached us and said, we're doing local podcasts. Do you want to try? And we launched with them, I think in the summer. And we've done like some creative exercises, like what's your favorite sound of New York? And like this political consultant I interviewed said, it's the sound of when you order shawarma or kebab and like it's the um, spatula scraping against the the street vendor like is doing that sound, right? It's like really um, beautiful moments that I love that give you a taste of New York. Mine was like the Broadway like ding, ding before you have to actually sit down. Cause it means I made it right. Like I made it the subway, like stuff like that. So, and then we'll talk to a New Yorker. So the podcast comes in with the monetization piece. So how did we monetize our newsletters? So you probably feel like you're all over the place. Some of them are free. Some of them are community driven. This one you're serving rich people in long Island and rich people in Miami. Like what's happening here. It's not a one size fits all but we have a very diversified economic model by design. Uh, I have spent my whole career in outlets that sold one thing and suffered because they sold one thing. And even as you would say, let's do the digital thing because they made more money or had more experience on the one thing, everyone favors the one thing and everything else just kind of becomes like, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. But this thing is really what we're all about. Right. And so For us, monetization has been three parts of like, it's like three legs of a stool. One is grants. So Epicenter got an early grant from the Ford Foundation early in like our existence saying, this is exactly the type of pandemic news and information people need. Thanks to Tracy Powell, when she was at Borealis, we got the racial justice, racial equity and justice um, grant. We got a New York City grant for the vaccine work. And now we're taking those efforts that were like all over the place and zooming in on a one under-vaccinated zip code in Eastern Queens. And we have been a revolution there. We secured vaccine vans. We navigated bureaucracy. It's moved up more than 10 percentage points since we began our work. So this is like concrete like impact, right? It's amazing. It's amazing, amazing. So those that's the grants bucket. And I'm hopeful that my narrative enables us to keep getting grants. Some of those are operations grants just to set up. The Borealis one specifically allowed us to hire a community manager who can hopefully shout about the work we're doing a little bit more to then like, you know, serve more people, bring in more people, like change how government responds to, you know, all of the things. The second um, leg of the stool is advertising. So for Epicenter right now, McKinsey is an advertiser. If you subscribe to um, Epicenter, you'll see McKinsey. They have sponsored content. 
And it's been great because so much of McKinsey's publishing content is small business, diversity, why women are leaving the workplace. It's actually like a lot of stuff that's so aligned with what Epicenter and our readership is all about. Also, uh, areas that I suspect we'll be getting into more with them is climate change, infrastructure, just like, and McKinsey with its data is like operating at a high level, epicenter is like on the ground, but on days like today, like we're still dealing with people telling us like my basement flooded again last night because of the rain. Like you, we're going to do that story, but grounding it in a partner that has like published research on climate change infrastructure and all that, I think is like totally aligned. And I really love that. The third is subscriptions. So Epicenter just launched a membership program, not overt subscriptions, because we don't have a paywall for anything I just mentioned. $5 a month, $10 a month, and uh, $299 a year. This is the magic Tracy number. She's like, what the hell does $299 a year get you? $5 gets you yoga once a week, that's what $5 a month gets you. $10 a month gets you yoga. And then we donate bags to food banks. So it's like, you're giving a you know, you're giving us, but you're giving someone else. $299 a year is really leaning into the lesson from these volunteers and the convening. People want to be together. And I think we often think about our content as like what they rally around versus actually finding each other. And we're the glue that brings them together. And so for $299 a year, you can get a behind-the-scenes tour of a museum exhibit, as we just did at the New York Historical Society, where the curator takes a group around and tells you like how she got you know, Truman Capote's invite for this thing and why this person was wearing this and what this all means. It's like super fascinating because like it's kind of gossipy. So it like totally it's like great for me. And then my husband could take you on a gallery hop through Chelsea. I could take you on a food tour of Jackson Heights. Uh, We have our writer for The Unmuted who also conducts, she does this anyway, hip hop tours of the Bronx. We have the tours of Little Caribbean in Brooklyn. Uh, We have a woman in Hoboken who, I love it. She's taking like the bro-y culture of Hoboken and being like, we're going to do a tour of all the women-owned businesses in Hoboken, and you're going to talk to them about what they do. So we have all these offerings that are built around convening, conversation, hopefully people you wouldn't mind spending an hour with as they're talking about an aspect of the area or something that we've talked about in our newsletter that you would want to learn more about. The escape home is currently only monetized through the $99 a year. I do see, we've done some marketing partnerships where we've entered into like doing a study with uh, Picasso, which is one of these companies that does a partial home ownership. So like you could own an eighth of a home, which y'all might be like, why would I want to own an eighth of a home? A lot of studies show that people who own second homes only spend like 20 days a year in them. You're not there that much. So can you do fractional ownership? So we're starting to get into partnerships like that. We see that as having many avenues of monetization, including affiliate links. So we do have affiliate links to Amazon uh, with some products that we'll recommend there. I see that being a bigger part of the business. Right now, it's like picnic blankets and heaters and, um, you know, like air purifiers. Everyone's been into air purifiers if they're like renting out their home. 
So yeah, I, I did get super granular because you told me to get granular in the monetization question. Amazon links for us, like I think we're going to have to try to find a partner and like that's more in the wire cutter realm. And like I, I welcome all thoughts on that. Like I think another hope, like the like a part of the hope of doing these talks is also that many of you are in the same business and might have thoughts where we can also help each other out. I have one more monetization question for you, Mitra, before then I answer one about newsletters and can share a little bit about Pulso. Martha asks, as URL, which I understand to be an aggregator of other newsletters, like you were mentioning, do you profit share? And if you do, what are what do those agreements look like? Excellent question. So URL is really rooted in the sustainability of our partners. So uh, we share from our nine partners. We have had one ad deal that we actually didn't monetize against the URL newsletter. We monetized against everybody else's newsletters. And yes, we shared the pot there. We are in the process of hiring a VP of sales and revenue. The job is on our website, url-media.com. So if you know anyone who's looking, let me know. It's a great, great, great job. And that person will really be responsible to kind of answer your question of not just, we know we can upsell. We've like proven that, right? We know we can upsell as a network that, you know, on day one reaches more than 5 million users, right? because of the partnerships and because of the, it's literally on the backs of these outlets that we achieve scale. What we're trying to do is develop a network that figures out the algorithm in a way that's better than CPM based. That's, you know, we hope, we think one of the greatest strengths of our network is that people are in service to their users. So there's incredible loyalty that's created out of that. How do you quantify that? is also an open question. Um, and I would welcome thoughts on this. And that's what this VP of sales and revenue will be doing is being able to sell across the network, uh, some newsletter, but also, you know, other launches, other, like I could see being in partnership. I've talked to TBN, actually not even talked, we've done with TBN 24, the Bangladeshi live streaming channel. We've hosted debates together. We've interviewed politicians together. So I could see us joining in a bigger way and guaranteeing like, hey, this show reaches 2 million out of the 5 million. What are the sponsorship opportunities around that is, is kind of where I see it going in 2022. Oh, so much to think about, but you all seem to be on, on top of so many things, Mitra. Thank you for just getting super specific and giving us a roadmap for me included. And for those who ask questions, it's super helpful. I'm going to answer a question from Lynn who asks about newsletters when it's not based on a specific community or neighborhood, but on a subject matter. Uh, I'm sure, Mitra, you have some thoughts. I'll share what we're doing at Pulso. So to give you all a bit more context, Pulso is a nonprofit digital media startup. We do news, history, and culture stories for Latinos across the U.S. We're on six different platforms, mostly Facebook Messenger, Instagram and our podcast. And we are about to embark on the newsletter journey next year. So we first do a lot of experimentation. So this looks like ads on Facebook to see what's the best way to acquire an email user. We see what emails we have from folks from our different platforms and start to first see what our database of emails looks like since we do have audiences across different platforms. And then once we have kind of that national audience in our case, we survey them. So we do a lot of customer discovery, how we call it in our world. So it looks like straight up asking them, what subjects do you want to learn about? 
what do you care the most about? What are the issues you care about? And we ask it in a bunch of different ways and then combine that and start to do some light tests. So we did one test last week as we start to see what's of interest to folks where we sent them just one email through a Facebook ad on the subject that they were interested in versus another one. And to see what are the topics that people care about, because that is the path that we're heading towards. It'll be a subject matter newsletter. And some of the subjects that we're exploring based on what our audience has told us is saving democracy, which I am personally deeply committed to. So voting rights and democracy promotion and all of those topics our audience is interested in. So we'll see what we can do there access to affordable health care, top three issues for our community every time we ask, and access to affordable education. And I think that the student loan debt forgiveness conversation is something that we can capitalize on in our audience, which is Gen X to Gen Z. It's either students who are about to go to college, millennials like me who may or may not have student debt, and then parents who are paying for that. So that's a little bit of insight from our end. I don't know, Mitra, if you want to add too, because I'm sure that like you mentioned, some of your products are not just based on your community, but are also on um, that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tell me which, I'm just looking and scrolling up to see the, was it Lynn's? No. Which one were you just answering? Yeah. Lynn in the Q and a box answered any advice for a journal looking to launch a newsletter. That's not community neighborhood based, but subject matter based. Oh, so that's like the escape home. Yeah. So, I mean, I, so like, here's the thing there's a part of me that's like eyes wide open on the scale of Jackson Heights. It's limited in scale, right? So the escape home for us was that play of what's the business that allows us not just to be national, but global. One other thing I've been looking at with interest is that Airbnb, Airbnb similarly has to scale in Europe and Asia in order to be successful as a, as a technology company. And I did get a few inquiries about like, would you do a version of this for Asia and Europe, right? And I think that's important because that's like the same growth that we've seen. Like I launched Quartz, I launched Quartz India, I launched Quartz Africa. You've seen that with other digital channels being able to go global. The best tip on how to get started is to hire subject experts, honestly. Like you could hire freelancers, that's fine. Our main freelancer on the escape home is a woman named Connie Mitchell Ford. Look her up. She's the former real estate editor at the Wall Street Journal and is amazing. Amazing. She's a professor now at the University of Maryland in the journalism school and just like a badass business editor and reporter. So she gave us instant like validity, you know, and then I used to cover, I was her reporter. I used to cover real estate at the Wall Street Journal. So like I was dabbling around a little bit and I just think like who you put as the face of the brand in some ways, like early now she doesn't write everything cause she's busy, but we will run stuff by her. She's caught so many mistakes. We have young staffers who are interested in travel and real estate writing and like just having that expertise is everything. I think that's really, really important because you don't want to, if you're doing a niche It's kind of like, I would say there is like similarity with Jackson Heights. Like you guys can tell when some guy, usually it's a guy who's like, I'm going to do local now. And it's like, you've never even met your neighbor. You're going to do local now. Like, so you just, you want to make sure it's rooted. And I think that's the most um, important thing. I now see this Q and a box. It's great. I was looking. We have two more questions for you. Yeah. Yeah. So Damaso asks, 
how can a legacy news org of color do a better job of promoting their newsletter? So mm-hmm. you touched a bit about that being one of your challenges as well. And then Donna asks, do you have any partners in Texas, newsletters or other? Okay. I would love to hear from you in Texas. So I'll put my um, email in the chat. Okay. So the first question is on ethnic media, I guess like niche community, ethnic media and how they can promote their own newsletter. So we just got on Apple news game changer. And, you know, like, here's the thing, this is why URL media exists, you know, epicenter, you got to hire a developer to get on Apple news. You got to pitch them stories every day. Like I do not have the bandwidth. Again, this gets to the point of like this, why does CNN, why are they successful? Like you got to wonder like, what came first that you hired like 4,000 people in your news organization or that you dominate the internet, right? Like it's just, so I can't hire 4,000 people. Like, you know, maybe even four is a luxury. So URL media launched an Apple news channel under URL media and then sub channels for each of the partners. So like an outlet, like the Haitian times during the Haitian border crisis, its president was assassinated. There was an earthquake. Like there is not a news event. It feels like over the last like four months that like Haiti has not been somehow centered in this tiny country. Right. So I think one way is to leverage platforms in moments of news to like rise to the occasion. Right. So those are the moments when I'm like, Gary Pierre Pierre, the publisher of the Haitian times, like, I know you're so busy. You're going to hear from me like 20 times today because we're going to promote you on Apple news. There'll be a link to sign up for your newsletter. You're going to be on meet the press. You're going to be on MSNBC. You're going to be on CNN. You're going to be on NPR and you're going to be on CBS, which is a true story. He was on all those things in one day because URL media just kept pushing the Haitian times. You got to get the Haitian times out there. You're not going to, well, you're going to put your correspondent in Miami who don't even know where Haiti is like get the Haitian times. Right? So I think, it's being opportunistic when there's news is vital, vital, vital for your conversion. I think, you know, we're going to hit this point and Liz, you kind of touched on it about who your people are and, you know, chasing scale for scale sake versus like, these are the three areas that we are trying to serve you in. We dominate in these areas you know, who's with us. And these are some other maybe platforms or places that we might go. So it's not just growing, like, I'm trying to think if it's vertical or horizontal, it's not quite the right analogy, but like, you're not just growing your number of email subscribers, you might be growing your Instagram presence because you're trying to reach Gen Z. And that's like, it's just not going to happen on an email newsletter, right? So some of the growth needs to be intentional around, why and what is the for me it's always what's the community need driving this so like i'll give you one example from the escape home the number of queries we've gotten from people saying yeah we're about to airbnb our home can you just tell us everything you've written about it which for us is like a lot but like i'm assembling it in dribs and dribs. I mean, i'm literally like i'm literally sending it to them because i'm like that's customer service it's also very inefficient so that's making me think, oh, I should probably publish like an ebook or something small on how to be like a super host on Airbnb and take everything we've done on it and put that in one place. And maybe that's sponsorable. Maybe that's micropayments. Maybe that's all of the above. But like the market is telling me that's a need, right? 
Does that make sense? So it's like, not like you're innovating out of like, you know, like my brain, which sometimes my brain is not like, sometimes my brain is not really up with Gen Z. I hate to. Sometimes your ideas are not what other people like. I happens to me too. I always get worried. Mitra, I don't know if this happens to you, but when I am really passionate about a topic or something I want us to cover or share, I get worried because it's like, I'm too invested in this idea. It's probably going to bomb. Yeah. 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 Totally. Hey, hey, I just want to drill something home a little bit and I'm I'm trying to figure out the best way to to frame this question, but when, you know, I, I so appreciate what the, what the main, so the, the question he asked. So when it comes to legacy ethnic media organizations, oh yeah, there's a struggle because the, you know, there's such a need a content defeat the print, print edition. Are there stories or topics that might go on in the print edition that should not be going into a newsletter or even on their website. Yeah. Such a just stay out of the newsletter. Well, you know, and I, I really feel for print products right now because COVID, like, especially for some of the weeklies or twice weekly in community media, and these are communities most affected by COVID. Like, are we really going to put CDC guidance like in there? Because it's, this is, this was a challenge for, I just want to make sure that I, am in solidarity with both the question as well as the struggle, because this was in some ways a challenge for Epicenter as a once weekly newsletter, now twice weekly. How do we serve our communities? And also, is it like some stuff here and to Tracy's question, some stuff not. So I would say that we need to almost see the printed product as kind of magazines, evergreen, the how-to. Also, own that news might be outdated, but could we like stick in a QR code or an email or a phone number? I just did this for our newsletter yesterday. We expect the next few weeks will be crazy on vaccines because of the ages five to 11 opening up and being approved for Pfizer. We don't know what this rollout will look like. We've heard mobile vans, pediatricians offices. I don't know. Here's our phone number. Here's our email. The one thing I can tell you is that we will figure it out and help you, right? Now, there is no reason the version of that cannot go in, you know, an ethnic newspaper that comes out only on Thursdays. And it is like, our service to you is greater than the information here. Our service to you actually might happen not on your phone, not in the paper, not on Instagram. It might happen in a completely different space, but that's the role we have to play. And it really, it's hard, Tracy, because then it's like up against scale. Like, how do you scale? What are 6,000 people going to call you? Part of the reason we also did the podcast was because I was like, well, let's just at least have, like our podcast this week is like, I think it's so good it's women who were worried about getting the vaccine while they're pregnant or trying to conceive, which like we have written stories about, but we just talked to a black doctor in New York health and hospitals, like talking about like real fears in her community, but also the science, like she's the expert, right? So we sent her her voice. And then there's two, I think they were white moms. They sounded like white moms in Brooklyn who were like, this has been so stressful, but we got the vaccine and here's what it was like. My kid came out. He's like totally normal. The other woman is still pregnant. Like I loved it. It was earthy and it was real. And 
anyway, I don't know if that's Tracy, what you're getting at, but I think you need legacy outlets to embrace being in more spaces, but not making it so hard on themselves because I'm not able to, I, I don't have a podcast producer. Like the thing I just said was like very organically created because someone was doing an interview anyway. And then like we made her record it and then that became the podcast. And then I just want to get to the legacy news orgs of promoting. Yeah. So I, I, anyway, I think I answered that by saying you just need to be in other places. One other thing that we're doing, which I just spoke in a church on Sunday and I do a lot of speaking in church, Tracy, which might surprise you because um, I am not of the Judeo-Christian faith. Like, I don't even know what faith I'm of, but I have spent more time in church. I spent two times in my life. I've spent a lot of time in church. One, when I lived in Puerto Rico, because everyone goes to church and my neighbor had a horse. So if I ever wanted to ride her horse, I would have to go with her to church first. And so I went every Sunday for the years I lived there. And then now with the vaccine effort, I've been talking in front of churches like nobody's business. I don't have postcards or flyers to hand people in church when they're like, oh, I do have a question on getting my kid into school or kindergarten. I do have a, and like, so I just ordered 5,000 postcards and they're supposed to come here by tonight. Cause I'm like, I need this now. Like we're, we're in people's faces. Anyway. Great answer. Thank you for that. Of course. You have one more question here. From Lee, who asks, we will be launching two podcasts covering the Laotian and Filipino communities in Georgia. What top three advice would you have for our launch? Um, that's great. I'm looking at this. I mean, I almost feel like you would know more in terms of like the communities themselves, like what prompted the newsletter. I think the outreach piece is pretty key and like having, oh, and I would say like one thing that helped us were having people vouch for us. So like, are there ambassadors within your community that can say, this is launching? How do you make them feel a part of it as opposed to talk to? One thing we did is like, I've, the world of influencers does not have to be 20,000 followers on Twitter or Instagram. Like we had a Tibetan woman who was at one of our tables and she just went live on Facebook and Instagram. And suddenly all these Tibetans showed up for information. And I was watching this dynamic and I was like, we don't open ourselves up to our community to do more of our work for us. And I share that in case there are members of the Laotian or um, what was the other community list? That Filipino. They Filipino. Filipino. Yeah. Filipino community that could almost be like your brand ambassadors there's also another woman in Georgia who just launched an immigrant newsletter. And I wonder if there's like a kind of like a you swap with us and I highlight you kind of section. I've been thinking a bunch of us who handle immigration need to do this more often. Um, and I welcome collaboration on this because one of the um, pieces of COVID that came up when we were working with the Haitian Times was just like navigating basic immigration information, like what is, you know, like, how do I get into the US right now? Have they opened up, like for India, for example, there was a travel ban that started to open up, like things like that, that are just more logistic in nature, but also with an eye towards serving. I think there is a product or maybe like something we all feed into around that. 
I have one final question for you, Mitra, before we hop off. And it touches on a bit of what you were saying of you don't have a staff of 4,000. It touches on what we were talking about before we started. It's as a fellow founder, I can relate to the need to do it all. You mentioned that sometimes you're writing newsletters or you're taking turns, you're taking people on food tours, you're trying to expand and acquire and pivot and iterate. How do you prioritize? What is it that you're focused the most on now? Help us do this without not sleeping ever and still keeping our love for our communities and the work that we want to do and not burning out. Yeah. Burnout. I mean, I'm a little worried about burnout. Cause I like, some people are like, who's doing your PR you're everywhere. And I'm like, I'm really I, like, I can't, first of all, there's a, there's like a few cardinal rules of being like a woman of color who is not just a founder, but like has like achieved any level of success in life, which is like, you never say no to your own people. Now that's like, so at odds with, kind of the just say no sometimes like philosophy that I feel like a lot of white women are able to say, and I don't get to do that. So I'm trying to lean into what can I say no to, but then also like you got to own what you owe your people. And like, at times it feels exhausting and a lot, but you are there because of your people. So you got to almost like propel it forward. And then one thing I've tried to do is if it's clear, they're looking for kind of some of the shine of like, we want to highlight a woman of color. I'll look around and be like, who else can I put in there who might feel like, oh, they've not been getting a lot of PR lately. Right. So like, I have been trying to share the love. I did this even like for my, all my time in mainstream media, like when I would have like theater tickets or like there was one week where I went to like a Madonna concert, Lizzo and like Dave Chappelle, I'll confess. I went to see Dave Chappelle at Radio City like three years ago. And, and like, everyone was just like, Oh my God, like you're so out there. And I'm like, look, this is a part of the journalism process. This is a part of the community process that you're informed and by so many different things And I think the minute that I lose that both escape as well as enrichment of my life and my business, then like, this just isn't worth doing, you know? So I really do try to keep um, some of that centered and also just fun. And then like, how does it inform your work? I, I wish I had a better answer on the burnout because like everything I just told you, I am worried about in a year being like, Like I've seen this with friends, like you probably have seen this too, like where they just are like, they're everywhere and then they're suddenly off the radar. And like, we don't really talk about that. And I'm so worried that like, what if the same features of my personality and my work ethic that like get a high off of, we just landed a deal and like, we just broke a big story and like we helped 6,000 people. There's an adrenaline rush what if the crash is greater than the rush is something I am articulating because I think we're in community together on some of these issues. And so I think about that. The weekly yoga that we offer to our community is also intention. It started with our staffers, contractors, and freelancers as like a, Hey, we just grew a lot. Like let's do this thing. Right. It's, it's, it's stressful and like take a pause. 
I wish I had a better answer though. I kind of feel like that's, that's what I'm doing right now. I also call people randomly. So like everything's so scheduled and I like I'm on zoom and this and that, but like, I will literally just call someone and right away be like, nothing's wrong. I have no agenda. I just am calling and I'll do this with like kind of badass founder type women. Like I'll do this with big people because I worry that people are not doing it with them. And I love when someone says, I'm just checking on you. I love when someone sends me flowers or someone just sent me gourmet soy sauces and was like, thanks for doing this thing you did. Like stuff like that, you know, really does brighten someone's day. This is my friend Mitra every day, all day. She makes sure she takes care of folks and wants to make sure that she's including folks and everything. I love it. This has been a great conversation. It's been incredibly rich and I'm going to share this recording far and wide because there's just so much wisdom that was dropped here. I so appreciate Liz and Mitra having this conversation. Thank you, Liz. You're so good. Thank you She's both. Phenomenal. She's You're phenomenal. amazing. In the, in the interest of, of transparency, yes, I did invest in both of these ah. organizations, and and you've just witnessed the reason why. I think they're both incredible people, uh, organizations led by two incredible people. So thank you again. Thank you. And thank you for everybody who attended today. I hope that you continue to come and to continue to soak up knowledge. And we at the Pivot Fund appreciate and love all the love that we're getting. And, and hopefully we'll share, we're sharing that back with you with conversations like this. Thank you. Thank you, thank Tracy. You so thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Liz. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.